Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your love and grace toward every one of us. You have called us out of darkness and into your marvelous light. We thank you for that. We are united because the most important thing in our lives is the same, and that is you. Your converting power, your unconditional love that melted our hearts and made us want to serve you. Lord, this is why we are united. But it's important, Lord, that we understand the truth in a way that will keep us united. Please help us during this time to have our eyes wide open to wherever you and your word will lead us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know if you are aware of this, but at the last general conference session in 2015, there were changes made to the wording of a number of our fundamental beliefs. Anybody know that? Um, Including number six on creation. And there were delegates from areas of the world church that have embraced perhaps a more progressive hermeneutic than what we have been talking about, who really pushed back against the specifics related to the timing of the creation account uh, at that session. I was a delegate there. Um, They felt that we needed to leave our wording a little bit more open to different interpretations because they believe that the scripture leaves it open. I'd like to share with you a little of the wording that was put in that creation uh, uh, fundamental belief. It now reads, <laughs> I still haven't given in to uh, bifocals, <laughs> but I kind of try to fake it in front of people, <laughs> so I'm just going to take this off for a second. God has revealed in Scripture the authentic and historical account of His creative activity. He created the universe, and in a recent six-day creation, they don't like that the word recent was added, the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Thus he established the Sabbath as a perpetual memorial of the work he performed and completed during six literal days that together with the Sabbath constituted the same unit of time that we call a week today. They didn't like the same unit of time. I think it's fantastic. It just expresses that we believe in the obvious, clear, plain reading of Scripture. Now to me, the issue of creation is about as clear as anything in the Bible. So I don't know why someone wouldn't just believe what it says. The only reason I can give is the pressure to harmonize with popular science and culture. When culture becomes convinced of something, when everyone begins to speak essentially one opinion with one voice, it can be pretty hard to hold on to the Bible. They'll tell you that to believe in creation is to ignore the overwhelming evidence. Don't be so ignorant. Or to believe in complementary roles for men and women is just a smooth-talking form of misogyny and oppression of women. Don't be so discriminatory. Or to believe that homosexual practice is sinful behavior is to selfishly deny others the opportunity to love someone and has pushed innocent people to want to end their own lives. Don't be so hateful. I don't know about you, 
But I don't like being considered ignorant or discriminatory or hateful. But that's the pressure of culture. It has slain the faithfulness of many a Christian and the influence of many a denomination. And nothing leads to a wrong method of biblical interpretation like the pressures of culture. Whether historical, critical, or allegorical, or proof texting, all wrong methods of hermeneutics are the same to me. I call it the whatever it takes hermeneutic. Whatever it takes to come to the conclusion that I want. Now, the Seventh-day Adventist Church does not believe in creeds. Our only creed is the Bible. So, if sound Bible study leads us to a fuller or even deeper understanding than we have historically held on any point, we should be willing to go wherever the Lord is leading us. When it comes to controversial issues, such as women's ordination, for example, it's not that we shouldn't be willing to see things differently. We most certainly should be. But we should not make a change in practice unless and until we have an interpretation that follows the same method of interpretation as the rest of our biblical beliefs. It can't be based on speculation or suggestion or questionable reconstructions of history. And it can't ignore biblical precedent. It has to give a suitable reason for it. All of our beliefs and practices must use the same sound hermeneutical principles and be supported by the weight of inspired evidence. That's who we are as Seventh-day Adventists. Never the weight of popular opinion or cultural bias. No matter how strong it is, even of seemingly good things like justice or equality. Now you'll recall that we already looked at how to interpret the Bible. We said we need to read the Bible for its plain or literal meaning unless it's an obvious prophetic symbols or uh, metaphoric language. We should consider the immediate scriptural context, the fuller inspired context, the historical context, and let the scriptures interpret themselves. Review and Herald, November 25, 1884, says, Genuine faith is founded on the scriptures, but Satan uses so many devices to rest the scriptures and bring in error that great care is needed if one would know what they really do teach. It is one of the great delusions of this time to dwell much upon feeling and to claim honesty to do what? Claim honesty while ignoring the plain utterances of the Word of God, because that word does not coincide with feeling. Many have no foundation for their faith but emotion. She also says in Desire of Ages, page 258, the leaders of Israel professed to be expositors of God's Word. But they had studied it only to sustain their traditions and enforce their man-made observances. By their interpretation, they made it express sentiments that God had never given. Their mystical construction made indistinct that which He had made plain. They disputed over insignificant technicalities and practically denied the most essential truths. It is very possible for people to share an honest view but that doesn't necessarily mean that we are always being faithful to the plain meaning of Scripture. <clears throat> Pardon me, of Scripture. Now, I've talked about four different areas that we've applied hermeneutic principles to, and now I want to talk about women's ordination. Because 
I personally believe that one of the things that will bring us together more than any other is to just talk about the text. You have every right to disagree today. We're friends, no problem there. But we're going to talk about it. From the weight of evidence I have seen, it seems to me that the Bible designates men to serve in the office of either the elder or the minister. This does not mean that there aren't passages that require a lot of study on the issue. The church would not have undergone this long, extensive process if no one was suggesting a different biblical interpretation. But understand, the issue over women's ordination is not just a policy issue. It's a biblical one. There would not be so much concern and conviction and line-in-the-sand mentalities if this was just a policy issue. Secondly, I am not speaking today as the definitive voice of the church. And I am sincerely open to dialogue on the issue. To put it bluntly, I reserve the right to be wrong. And I have been before. And even when we believe something strongly, we should always be open to this possibility, which should also give us grace toward one another. I have friends and colleagues on both sides of this issue, issue that I genuinely and deeply love and respect. That will continue to be the case after this sermon is over. In my ministry, I have known women ministers and elders who were genuine Christians and who I still call friends. I disagree with anyone who would suggest that one gender is superior to another. I also believe that many women have had to face greater oppression, disrespect, and a general lack of appreciation throughout history than men. Women have not always been treated or paid fairly. Even when working in the church, there should be time spent developing ministry tracks that will utilize the unique gifts and talents of women. Having said all of this, I also believe that there has been a general decline in the spiritual leadership of men in the church, both in families and the church. And I'm not so sure removing gender role distinctions has helped matters. So let's consider the primary biblical evidence given by those who support women's ordination. But first, I need to point you to the North American Division Theology of Ordination Study Committee report. When there was study done prior to the 2015 vote in San Antonio, not only was there a general conference theology of Ordination Study Committee, upon which Pastor McIntosh and myself both served, but there were also division theology of Ordination Study Committees for each division of the World Church. The North American Division published its report in which this chart was given on page 8. It shows what it calls a continuum of hermeneutical approaches. Now, in 1986, the Seventh-day Adventist Church voted a, a document that expressed our view of how to interpret, how to study and interpret the Bible. It was in Rio de Janeiro, and so it's called sometimes the Rio document. It still stands today as the hermeneutic method or statement on hermeneutics as understood by Seventh-day Adventists. <coughs> However, we have generally uh, aligned ourselves most commonly to the historical grammatical method of biblical interpretation, as scholars refer to it, okay? 
But in this chart, you'll see that it makes a continuum of interpretive methods. On the far left is the historical critical method. That'd be the most progressive, not really believing that all of the Bible is inspired, etc. We've talked about that. On the far right is a literalistic method that believes that the Bible was uh, in, dictated by the Holy Spirit, that, it's, that it is not thought inspiration, but verbal inspiration. We talked about that last night. Okay? So you have these two. And then in between, it has a bracket that says that there's two methods that can fall under the church-voted statement in Rio on how we interpret the Bible. And now, instead of just having the historical grammatical method, there is another method that's over more to the left toward the historical critical side called principle-based historical cultural. The reason that this hermeneutic was added was so that we would understand that in order to come to its understanding of women's ordination, it did not follow the historical grammatical method, but a slightly different method, which it believes is still within the purview of what we believe as a church, but is, but is distinctly different from the historical grammatical method called principle-based historical cultural. The idea of principle-based is, as you will see, there is, much, there is not much on the pro-women's ordination viewpoint that points to specifics about women being able to serve as elders and ministers. You're not going to see that deep study. Instead, you're going to see texts that seem to give principles that they then believe you can apply to the issue. And that's why they had to use principle-based historical cultural instead of a historical grammatical. I just want you to understand and see this for yourself so that you know that they themselves understood that there was a slightly different hermeneutic than what most would probably have thought that they would be using in order for them to come to the conclusion that they came to. Now let's go to the Bible. Take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Timothy. And the first thing that I'm going to do with you is simply take a little time to walk through the most critical passage on the subject of women's ordination, which is in 1 Timothy 2 and 3. Okay? Now, first you need to know that Timothy is one of what is referred to as the pastoral uh, epistles. Another one being Titus. It's called that because Paul wrote it to a minister, a pastor, Timothy, who was at that time in Ephesus, and Titus was another minister. And so the idea was that the apostle was writing to them so that they understood how to conduct things in the house of God. Okay? This was so that they had a general sense of the organization of the church because they were going to be not necessarily staying in one place. If you look at the other epistles, they were to Galatia, Ephesus, uh, Philippi, Colossae, etc., right? So what you're seeing are a different type where it's sent to a specific church. But these epistles were sent to these ministers. The reason that's important is because that means it doesn't just have a local application. But you would expect that since they will be going to more than one place, that this was given to these ministers so they would understand how to arrange the work wherever they are serving in pastoral ministry. Now, let's look at 1 Timothy together, starting... 
in chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3. Are you with me in 1 Timothy 3? All right. The Bible says, This is a faithful saying. If a man desires the position of a bishop, he desires a good work. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, temperate, sober-minded, of good behavior, hospitable, able to teach, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not covetous, one who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence. For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? Not a novice, lest being puffed up with pride he fall into the same condemnation as the devil. Moreover, he must have a good testimony among those who are outside, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Okay, here is the most key passage. Now, there are a few things that immediately come to mind from the plain reading of the text. One, it says, uh, if a man desires the position of a bishop, you will hear that it can be translated, if anyone desires, which is one of the points that was made in Tosk by those who were in favor of women's ordination. But then it says he must be the husband of one wife. And this really cannot be read differently. Um, beyond that statement and the male pronouns that you see throughout, you then have in verse 5 the statement, I'm sorry, verse 4, that it must be one who rules his own house well. Okay, This is very important, and I'll talk about it more in a minute, but one thing that must be conceded, even by those who are in favor of the ordination of women to the gospel ministry, is that the Bible and the Spirit of Prophecy are both very clear that the husband and father is designated as the priest and spiritual leader of the home. And so when the text itself calls upon the one who must be able to rule his own house well, it seems logical to conclude that this would... Uh, limit this to the role of the male. Okay, now, having said that, this is the biggest problem that we face in dealing with 1 Timothy. Some people do not read the immediate context, or they split the context up and talk about it as different things. I'd like to now draw in the immediate context in 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2, and let's just look at uh, verse, well, let's do verse 11 just to get everybody riled up. <laughs> Let a woman learn in silence with all submission. And I, I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over man, to be, but to be in silence. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Now, in this passage, there's something important for you to note. This word in the Greek that is translated silence, if you look up in chapter 2 and verse 2, notice what it's saying. Uh, let's start in verse 1 of chapter 2. Therefore I exhort first of all that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and all who are what? In authority, so it's talking. He's talking about the way that we relate to the societal structure of authority, right? Are you with me? Don't you know? Be unwilling to answer my non-rhetorical questions. I'll feel more alone than I already feel up here. 
Then it comes to verse, uh, we're continuing verse 2, and kings and all, for kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and what? Peaceable life. The word that is translated peaceable is the adjective form of the exact same word that is used in its noun form and translated silence. So here it's translated peaceable and it's put into the context of living peaceably within the authority structure of the society, of the kings. So when you see it further down and it's speaking about I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. And in that context, it talks about this silence. It's talking about peaceably coexisting within the uh, structure, the organizational structure and authorities of the church. It's not talking about muzzling women or the fact that they can't speak. Let me give you another point on this. When it says, I do not permit a woman to teach... You cannot take that by itself because hermeneutically, what is the first thing that we're going to do when we read a text that says, I do not permit a woman to teach? If we have a proof text method, we'll immediately say, ah, there you go. Let's get rid of all the female Sabbath school teachers, right? That's the proof text. But if you're going to use sound hermeneutic principles, you're going to look at that and you're going to say, okay, what does the rest of the body of Scripture have to say? And as Seventh-day Adventists, we're also going to say, what is the spirit of prophecy, which we have validated from Scripture to be genuinely uh, prophetic authority, then how, what does that have to say? And you will find that Priscilla was teaching alongside Aquila. You will find that the older women were told by the apostle himself to teach the younger women. So could it be even possible that he would be saying here, I do not permit a woman to teach, period. No, hermeneutically, it's not. There's no way, because we have the, both the precedent, we have the examples in the Bible, and we have the express instruction of the Apostle Paul. So now you have to bring in the second half of the text, which is intimately connected and cannot be separated from it. I do not permit a woman to teach, or what? To have authority over a man. Well, Let's think for a moment. When we were reading in chapter 3, what was one of the uh, qualifications of the elder? He must be able to teach. When you look at the, at the deacon, down in verse 8, you will not find where it says, he must be able to teach. Now, there were some powerful evangelist deacons, and I'm not saying deacons shouldn't teach, but I'm saying that specifically the teaching qualification is listed with the elder who is being placed in a position of ecclesiastical authority within the church structure. It's teaching authority. So I want you to think about this with me for a moment. When the Bible in chapter 3 says... Husband of one wife must be one who rules his own house well and seems to limit it to men. That is necessary in order to be in harmony with the immediate context of chapter 2, where he prohibited women to be in a position of teaching authority. I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. In other words, in the official role of the elder in the church that is, that is established as the uh, structural authority within the church. So this is actually a very sequential, 
common sense argument that he's using. If we take it from a very, you know, proof texting standpoint, we can get mad, you know, and say, oh, he's telling women they need to be quiet. No, he's actually not. He's actually just explaining that within the church structure that the role of the elder minister is reserved for men. And then he gives as his reason for Adam was what? Formed first, then Eve. So where does he point to as his reason? Back to creation. Now is that before sin or after sin? That's before. So very clearly the Apostle Paul points back to the original creation order. Ellen White describes how Adam was, stood as the head of the human family and he was to be the protector of the human family. And this is very important. And one of the things that happened, and Ellen White comments on this, when Eve went her way to that tree was that there was not that working together with Adam that was originally designed. Now, I'm going to share with you from the Position 2 summary on 1 Timothy 2 and 3. Position 2 is the closest thing we can get to an official statement from those from the Theology of Ordination Study Committee who support women's ordination. So I'm not hiding anything from you. I'm going to read directly what they say about 1 Timothy chapter 2 and 3. Or is that okay with you? Okay, and then I'm going to take my privilege of commenting on it. <laughs> First, there's a heading that says context, and then it reads, A careful reading of 1 Timothy demonstrates that Paul's letter was written in response to false teachings that threatened to destroy the work of God in Ephesus. From the very outset of his letter, Paul charges Timothy to oppose the false teachers whose misguided doctrines were undermining the genuine work of the gospel. The false teachings were also making extensive inroads among a number of the believing women. The extent to which the false teachings were negatively influencing them is indicated in the prominent attention Paul gives to women in his discussions against false teachings. He is concerned with the conduct of women in worship, with widows, and with women who were going from house to house, quote, saying things they should not, from chapter 5, verse 14. The fact that Paul describes these women as saying things they should not, suggests they were connected to some extent with the certain persons Timothy was charged to keep from teaching a different doctrine. So I'm going to pause there for a moment. So the foundation that's being laid in this viewpoint is that the book of 1 Timothy was written with the primary purpose of dealing with false teachers and that women in Ephesus had been influenced by these false teachers, and that those women began false teaching themselves. Okay? Now, don't just take their word for it. Make sure that you check it out. I'm going to point you, we're going to go to the text that they reference to say this seems to indicate that the women were passing on these false teachings. It's in chapter 5. And... Verse 13. Chapter 5, verse 13. It says, And besides, they learned to be idle, 
Uh, let's, verse, let's start in verse 11. But refuse the younger widows, for when they have begun to grow wanton against Christ, they desire to marry, having condemnation because they have cast off their first faith. And besides, they learn to be idle, wandering about from house to house, and not only idle, but also gossips and busybodies, saying things which they ought not. Now when you read that, what does it sound like the women are doing? Gossiping. What's a busybody? Getting into people's business, right? And saying things that they ought not. Does this sound, and let me just back up for a second, is there conclusive evidence from this that these women were actually passing on the false teaching of the men who are clearly named as false teachers in 1 Timothy? In my estimation, the very language of gossips and busybodies actually, actually makes me think that they probably were not. Not only is it not conclusive, but it seems more likely that this is not talking about false teaching at all. It's talking about gossip, because that's the word that's used. Okay, So I wanted to pause and do that so that you didn't just embrace fully what the, the premise was that was being given. Now I'm going to pick back up on the position two summary. Are you ready? The connection of these women with the false teachers can also be seen in that their desire not to marry and bear children coincides with the false teachers' advocacy of celibacy. It was the connection of these women with the false teachers and their heretical doctrines that lay at the heart of Paul's prohibition. So in other words, Paul is prohibiting these women to teach because they're passing along the teachings of the false teachers. That's the viewpoint. And the other evidence that was just given to this is that the false teachers advocate celibacy, which you can see in chapter 4, that it speaks about how in the last days some will depart from the faith uh, and giving heed to doctrines of demons, speaking lies, forbidding to marry. Okay? But the problem is the reference to these ladies promoting celibacy doesn't do that. Because when you go to chapter 5, where they say they've embraced this doctrine of celibacy that the false teachers are saying, this is what it actually says. We already read it in chapter 5, verse 11. But refuse the younger widows, for when they have begun to grow wanton against Christ, they desire to marry. So the whole idea is they actually, this is just talking about the younger widows. There was a group of older widows that were part of a, Actually, a, you could say a, a group that was being especially cared for by the church. And the problem was that if they were younger widows, they would start there and be provided for by the church, and then they would marry, and then they would be provided for by their husband. And Paul said, no. If they're under 60, encourage them to go ahead and marry, okay? Rather than uh, having them be part of this group that is sustained by the church. That's the context if you read it just as it reads, Okay? So, I just wanted to draw that out. Now the last paragraph that I'll share with you from the position two summary. It's headed, Women Forbidden to Teach. Women are forbidden to teach because of the influence the false teachings are having over them. An influence that may have not only affected their behavior, but that likely involved their promotion of the false teachings as well. The women in Ephesus were not fit to teach not because they were women, but because they had been or were being deceived by the false teachers. 
just as Eve had been deceived by the alluring words of the serpent. Under these circumstances, these women were in no position to teach. They first needed to become learners. Okay, so let me point out something that I think you need to think about in the context of hermeneutics that we're talking about this weekend. Earlier, they said, the fact that Paul describes these women as saying things they should not suggests that they were connected to some extent with the certain uh, persons that Timothy was charged to keep from teaching a different doctrine. They had an influence that may have not only affected their behavior, but likely their promotion of the false teachings as well. Do you hear the confidence in that? Okay, all of that is likely, maybe, suggested, possibly, and then when you get down to the end, under these circumstances. Like, how do you suggest, possible, likely, maybe, and then when you come to your conclusion, definitively say that these were the circumstances? But that's what has been done. This is the danger of, of taking a cultural reconstruction, a historical reconstruction, and then using it as the basis for your doctrinal conclusion. Under these circumstances, says these women were in no position to teach. They first needed to become learners. So, remind me again. What was the reason that Paul gave that he said, I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man? For at, the word for, by the, way, by the way, means because. Paul gives his own reason. He says, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. Now, we may not have explored that yet. We may not fully understand that yet. But one thing it doesn't say is, for in Ephesus, you know, there was women teaching. You know, there wasn't an exp, a local explanation. It was a clear reference back to creation. That's what the text says. Now, I'm going to be asking a series of questions that I have not really received good answers to over the course of this message. This is the first one. How can we conclude from 1 Timothy 5.13, which says that women were going around as gossips and busybodies, saying things that they ought not, that they were engaged in passing along the false teachings of certain men in Ephesus? Where does it say or even imply this in the text? Another question. If 1 Timothy was only addressing a local problem in Ephesus, why do we not see a single case of a woman serving as an elder in the various other churches in the New Testament? If this was only a prohibition for Ephesus, why do we not see in other places? Another question. If only certain women were repeating false, uh, if only certain women were repeating false teachings, why would Paul ban all women from authoritative teaching? I do not permit a woman to teach. Why did he do that? And if Paul was only prohibiting women in Ephesus, why don't we see female elders in the other places again? If false teaching gets your gender banned from teaching, why are the men not banned since the only people we are sure were teaching falsehoods were men? There's two of them listed in the book. And if the false teacher's rationale is true, why did Paul refer to the order of creation as his own reason? Now, I'd like to pose a question more related to chapter 3. 
and the qualification of ruling his own house well. You remember I said we were going to come back to that. And this is a question that I don't believe gets near enough attention. If saying that only men can be ordained ministers is considered a gross injustice tantamount to the abuse of women, why is it okay for men to be considered the priest and head of the home? Like, I just don't understand. It's a logical problem I have in my head. Let me be clear about something else. Just because we look at this passage and see that the role of the elder is reserved for men, it's not for all men. It's only men who meet certain qualifications. When you hear pro-ordination, uh, you know, proponents of women's ordination make the suggestion that we believe in the, that all men are over all women, that is simply not true. The reality is that the role of the local church, uh, pastor, minister, elder, is, is not something for all men. Now, let's talk for a moment, though, about this, because I don't understand it. If it's totally unjust in the church, why is it considered totally okay in the home? Why is there not a cry for injustice? The reality is, I'm going to just cut to the chase here a little bit, that some believe it is an injustice, but they have a hard time saying it because there's so much inspired evidence. So they, you know, make suggestions, inferences, that it's not the ideal, but they are, they are bound by the fact that this is so obvious and clear. Let me give you some places. Let's start with the spirit of prophecy. We could go to Ephesians 5, but you know that one. Adventist Home, page 212. All members of the family center in the Father. He is the lawmaker, illustrating in his own manly bearing the sterner virtues. Energy, integrity, honesty, patience, courage, diligence, and practical usefulness. 215. The Lord has constituted the husband, the head of the wife, to be her protector. He is the houseband of the family, binding the members together. This is where we always have to encourage people to understand. Uh, number one, I love my wife. Number two, I don't think that I deserve to rule over her. Okay? And number three, Ellen White says that a man who tries to use the scripture to support uh, being viewed as inerrant to his wife will not advance his cause in the slightest, but only hurt it. And says that men should be in a position that recognizes the same as Christ in servanthood and loving the wife as Christ loves the church. This is the only true meaning. Now, the attempt of many who favor women's ordination has been to suggest that this whole arrangement is the result of sin. And uh, I already pointed you to how the Apostle Paul points it to before sin. But let me also share with you a passage that I had to personally wrestle with. In any doctrine, you're going to have certain passages that are, seem to say something a little different you have to wrestle with. And I'm going to share with you openly one that I had to wrestle with. Adventist Home, page 115. In the creation, God had made her the equal of Adam. Had they remained obedient to God, in harmony with his great law of love, they would ever have been in harmony with each other. But sin had brought discord, and now their union could be maintained and harmony preserved only by submission on the part of the one or the other. Now, if we read this statement carefully, 
It's simply saying that the submission taught by Paul in the marriage relationship was unnecessary before the fall. Because, as she says here, if they hadn't sinned, they would ever have been in harmony with each other. She says, sin brought what? Discord. It's only when there's no harmony, when discord enters, that submission in the sense of surrendering your contradictory ideas or judgment or plans becomes necessary. So it isn't that man didn't have the role of priest or leader of his home before sin, but the perfect harmony between he and Eve before sin made the need for submitting or surrendering judgment when in disagreement unnecessary. Notice this statement from Ellen White that seems to support this view. Education, page 250 and 251. The Sabbath and the family were alike instituted where? In Eden, we're talking about before sin, right? And in God's purpose, they are indissolubly linked together. On this day, more than any, on any other, it was possible for us to live the life of Eden. It was God's plan. Okay, does that sound like before sin? It was God's plan for the members of the family to be associated in work and study, in worship and recreation, the father as priest of his household, and both father and mother as teachers and companions of their children. So very clearly, it was God's plan, the Eden plan, that the father would be the priest of the household. So we see clearly that this happened prior to sin. The curse of Genesis 3.16, where it says that uh, he shall rule over you, is not, it's basically just a distortion of something that was already there. And if you look at the passage in Genesis chapter 3, you find that that's the same with a few things. Childbirth existed before Eden, or before sin, and it would be more painful after sin, right? Uh, Work, tilling the ground, existed before sin, But after sin, it would produce thorns and be by the sweat of your brow. Male servant leadership existed in Eden before sin, but now it would be made difficult by the proud hearts of both men and women, and many women would experience wrongful oppression. Biblically, Adam always seems to be given ultimate responsibility for the fall. I don't know if you've ever noticed it. Even though Eve sinned first. I'm talking about the Bible now. In the first few chapters of Genesis, God created Adam first. That's the point that the Apostle Paul makes. We discover that God came to Adam first after eating the fruit, even though Eve was the first to eat it. The man is the one referenced as leaving father and mother and being joined to his wife. Then in the New Testament, Paul says in Romans 5 verse 12 that sin entered into the world through One man, Adam, which would be a very strange thing to say if Adam didn't have leadership responsibility in Eden, since again, it was not Adam, but Eve who first ate the fruit. Now, there's another passage that is commonly used, and it's in Galatians 3.28. I'll just share it with you. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. 
And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Now the first thing about Galatians 3.28, which is the most critical verse for those who are proponents of women's ordination, is that it's not talking about the office of elder. There's no reference to biblical offices in the passage. It simply talks about being heirs. Okay, It's talking about salvation. This text is considered more forward-looking and representing God's ideal to those who are proponents of women's ordination. But by making it seem more important or having more weight than the clear prohibitions given in the other epistles of Paul, what you create is what we referred to last night as a canon within a canon, where some areas of Scripture are more inspired than others. This, to me, sounds like higher criticism. Now, some people will say that this is the same as the issue of slavery. In other words, the Bible does not clearly condemn slavery, even though slavery is clearly wrong. So, they say, isn't the issue of ordination of women the same? This idea suggests that principles of justice given in the Bible provide a trajectory into the future. So they view Galatians 3.28, neither male nor female, as a trajectory into the future that we should take hold of in our day to make a change to better align ourselves with God's will. Now let me be clear, I'm not totally against certain aspects of trajectory, but I think there are some very real problems with applying this to women's ordination. Number one, while slavery in America was cruel and oppressive, complementary roles in the home and church need not be. Number two, while the Bible does not instruct, I'm sorry, it does instruct slaves to obey their masters, this is not the same as endorsing slavery. If it were, then the statements to be submissive under persecution would be an endorsement of persecution. But the Bible is simply giving personal instruction to individual Christians so they could know how to relate to whatever situation they were in. Number three, when the New Testament speaks of slavery, it refers to it as a situation that it would be desirable to be freed from. But never does it speak this way to women. And number four, when giving reasons for slaves to obey their masters, the Bible points forward to the future reward that they will receive if they patiently endure. But when giving reasons for women to embrace their roles in relation to men, it points them back to the original creation. Never does any slavery statement point back to a time before sin. Slavery is an institution that is result of sin. And you do not see the same when you talk about the roles, complementary roles of men and women. Romans 16, 7 is another common verse, and I only have two more that I'm going to share with you, so hold on. Romans 16, 7 says this, Greet Andronicus and Junia, my countrymen and my fellow prisoners, who are of note among the apostles, who also were in Christ before me. Proponents of women's ordination understand the challenge they have in that there are no examples of a woman being an apostle or an elder or a priest in the Bible. And so they look at Romans 16, 7 that speaks of Junia as being of note among the apostles and say that that means that Junia, which is a name that could be either male or female, was a female apostle. The problem is the idea of the phrase of note among the apostles 
is much more likely to mean known by the apostles. And since we have a clear picture of the apostles as the twelve, and Paul was added, it's very unlikely that there's an unknown female apostle out there that we don't hear about in Scripture. So that would simply just be a very vague, uh, likely not uh, uh, correct application. And then lastly, I'd like to talk to you about Ephesians 4, and then I'm going to tie it up by bringing it back to the Sabbath. In Ephesians 4, verse 11, it says, And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. Now, some people say because spiritual gifts apply to both men and women, and this is talking about pastors, therefore women are equally uh, called to serve as, as pastors. Now, let me tell you that I do believe that spiritual gifts are gender-inclusive. Both men and women can have the gift of pastor. But that is a gift that refers to pastoral care. This is not equivalent to the biblical office of elder that is today referred to as pastor or a minister. And what about the gift of prophet? Well, unlike priests, apostles, and elders, we have many examples of female prophets in the Bible or prophetesses. Deborah, Miriam, the daughters of Philip, to name a few. Ellen White, as a prophet, was never ordained into a church office. She advised the administrators of the church with messages she received from God, but she was not the one administering per se. The church does not give a prophet delegated authority because a prophet has direct authority from God and is given the responsibility of being a messenger of God to the people. The structure of the church ultimately is, is not inclusive of the prophet. That is a separate role. The nominating committee does not appoint a prophet. No executive committee has an interview to approve or deny the ordination of a prophet. Gifts and church offices are very different. Now here's the primary Ellen White statement used on this matter by proponents of women's ordination. Testimonies for the Church, volume 6, page 322. All who desire an opportunity for true ministry and who will give themselves unreservedly to God will find in the canvassing work opportunities to speak upon many things pertaining to the future immortal life. So what kind of work first is it describing? Canvassing work. The experience thus gained will be of greatest value to those who are fitting themselves for the ministry. It is the accompaniment of the Holy Spirit of God that prepares workers, both men and women, to become pastors to the flock of God. When she says this, understand that she is using it in the same way she uses the term in other places, where she talks about pastoring. Uh, pastoring is the shepherding. It's the personal visitation. It's the nurturing of the church. And both men and women can nurture the church. Not only that, but you don't have to be a pastor to pastor in the way that the Bible and Ellen White refer to it. For instance, Testimonies for the Church, Volume 5. Responsibilities must be laid upon who? The members of the church. The missionary spirit should be awakened as never before, and workers should be appointed as needed, who will act as what? Who are these people who are supposed to be pastors? Members. Because what's she talking about? She's not talking about the office that we refer to as pastor. She's talking about the role of ministering personally to individuals and having a nurturing role of personal ministry. 
putting forth, she says, personal effort to bring the church up to that condition where spiritual life and activity will be seen in all her borders. She says in another place, had the preacher done the work of a pastor, see again, she's not referring to pastor as a title or an office, but as a certain type of work that even members can do. Now, if Ellen White was in fact encouraging women to serve as local church pastors, let's just assume that that was the case. Why are there no examples of this? If this was actually what she was saying. Another question. If Ellen White supported women as ministers, why did she consistently refer only to men when referring to this role, and specifically mention both sexes when referring to various other ministries? Let me give you a couple examples. Testimonies for the Church, Volume 5. The primary object of our college was to afford who? Young men an opportunity to study for the ministry and to prepare young persons of both sexes to become workers in the various branches of the cause. Do you see the clear distinction she's making in the same statement? Another one from the same volume. Those who enter the missionary field should be men and women who walk and talk with God. Those who stand as ministers in the sacred desk should be men of blameless reputation. Do you see again the distinction she makes between being missionaries working in various lines of ministry versus standing behind the sacred desk and being in the office of the minister? Now let me encourage the ladies here today. The tenderest earthly tie is that between the mother and her child. The child is more readily impressed by the life and example of the mother than that of the father, for a stronger and more tender bond of union unites them. Do you see that? Stronger and more tender. Let me give you another one. We may safely say that the distinctive duties of woman are more sacred, more holy than those of man. She should feel that she is her husband's equal to stand by his side. She faithful at her post of duty and he at his. Testimonies, Volume 9. The Savior will reflect upon these self-sacrificing women the light of his countenance, and this will give them a power that will exceed that of men. They can do in families a work that men cannot do, a work that reaches the inner life. They can come close to the hearts of those who men cannot reach. Their work is needed. Now I have a question. If the bond between the mother and child is greater than that of the Father, and if the distinctive roles of women are more sacred than those of men, and if women can do a work in families greater than that of men, how is that equality? Are women just better than men? Don't answer. <laughs> or could it be that there are equal but distinctive, as she recalls it, roles for both men and women? And that both are equally important, and both can actually do a greater work in certain spheres than the other. If you believe only these statements, then men ought to just sit down and be quiet, because women are greater in every respect, as we have just read. And maybe they are. <laughs> All right. Now I'm going to tie this up with hermeneutics. Herman who? Hermeneutics. I want to show you how, from the beginning I said, if we're going to believe something, we need to make sure we're using the same principles we use to come to the truth about the Sabbath. So here are some hermeneutical problems. Those who believe differently than us about the Sabbath 
give extra-biblical sources greater weight than Scripture. The Lord's Day refers to the Sunday in the 2nd century writings, and they give that greater weight than the Bible's own statements that the Sabbath is my holy day. It's the Sabbath of the Lord your God. Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. Similarly, those who are proponents of women's ordination reconstruct the history in Ephesus and use that as the reason why Paul gave the prohibition to not teach or have authority over men instead of using Paul's own biblical reason that Adam was formed first and then Eve. These are both the same hermeneutical problem. Number two, giving no weight to biblical precedent. According to the Bible, God's people were keeping the Sabbath from Adam to the apostles and even pointing forth to the new earth with no change in practice. According to the Bible, there's not a single example of a female priest, elder, or apostle, despite the latter being chosen by Jesus himself. And in both cases, precedent is ignored. Number three, major conclusions are arrived at with only ambiguous references as evidence. We hear the apostles changed the day of worship because they were told to set something by them in store on the first day and Eutychus fell out of a window on Saturday night. These don't even hint at a change in the law or the day of worship. Similarly, Junia is a female apostle because she was of note among the apostles, which we understand is more likely to refer to merely being known by the apostles. Vague statements being used to make concrete conclusions. And major changes, quite frankly. Just like, by the way, just like we stated, that if God was really going to change the Sabbath, wouldn't he, since the precedent was so clear, wouldn't he make it clear? And in the same way, since we have the precedent in the Bible on this issue of leadership in the home and in the church, if God was going to, wouldn't he make it clear? That's the same issue that we're faced with. Number four, they ignore the immediate context. In Colossians 2, they say those Sabbaths were the weekly Sabbath of the moral law. They ignore the immediate context that refers to it not as a spiritual law, but a handwriting of requirements, and food and drink offerings, and festivals, and new moons. It's obviously not talking about the moral law. In a similar way, those who claim that men or women can be elders or ministers, despite the clear prohibition given in the immediate context of prohibiting teaching authority in 1 Timothy chapter 2. Again, immediate context must be considered. Number five, giving certain texts more weight. Those who teach the Sabbath is something that we don't have to keep because it's just all about a relationship with Jesus. They focus on Hebrews 4 and they ignore all the clear statements that talk about the apostles and Jesus and others keeping the Sabbath. Similarly, those who teach that Galatians 3.28 is the more important text Point forward to a time in the future where there's going to be no male or female, which, by the way, if you interpret that text that way, you are going down the path of homosexuality. I'm not telling you that many of our pro-ordination brothers and sisters believe that homosexual practice is normative and should be acceptable. I don't believe that most of them believe that. But I'm telling you, from a biblical interpretation standpoint, if you use neither male nor female, when it's just talking about the context of salvation and you use it to say there's now no role differentiation between male or female, you can also see there's no gender differentiation between male or female. It's the same hermeneutic, whether they believe it or not. 
Number six, arguing from silence. There are many who claim that the New Testament does not clearly command Sabbath-keeping, so we don't have to keep it. And I've heard it. There are claims that the elder qualifications do not explicitly state that it cannot be a woman, so it should be allowed. Now, I have to give my own sense that it wasn't just a suggestion in chapter 2. I just want to be clear. I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man. It was, it was actually stronger than just a suggestion. But in the qualifications in chapter 3, because it doesn't specify, some say that's you know, silence. The Bible's silent on it. I don't think that we can say that. And lastly, it cites experience as conclusive evidence. Many people claim that if I've had them come to my evangelistic meetings, if God has blessed so many Sunday churches and preachers, I know I'll preach a meeting on the Sabbath and people are convicted and then all of a sudden they start thinking, what about Billy Graham? What about, you know, Hagee? And what about, and they start thinking about these preachers that they have respected. And suddenly they think, no, there's so, much, so many ways that God is blessing all these Sunday keepers around the world that it, it can't be that God's not in it. And they take experience over the word. Similarly, there have been claims that if women have had positive pastoral experiences and results, it must be God's will that they serve as church pastors, regardless of what the text may actually say. Do you understand that what we're dealing with here, at least from, and admittedly this is my perspective I'm sharing with you today, but do you understand that it is a hermeneutical issue and how we interpret the Bible and how honest we are about taking all the biblical evidence and the obvious reading of the text whenever possible is at the heart of our challenge. The Great Controversy, page 595, God will have a people upon the earth to maintain the Bible and the Bible only as the standard of all doctrines and the basis of all reforms. The opinions of learned men, the deductions of science, the creed or decisions of ecclesiastical councils, the voice of the majority, not one nor all of these should be regarded as evidence for or against any point of religious faith. Before accepting any doctrine or precept, we should demand a plain, thus saith the Lord, in its support. This is my appeal to you. I appreciate your Christian grace in allowing me to speak so openly, and I'm more than happy to, uh, to hear conflicting or variety of views and talk to you about them. I think that this is where we need to be talking about, is the Bible and the text itself, and just want to thank you for giving me the privilege of sharing with you today. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you so much for your word. We believe that it's fully inspired. We believe that it's fully authoritative. Please, Lord, if in any way our church is going down a wrong path, steer us. Let us be humble and submissive to your word. Let us tremble before your word. And in everything, Lord, instead of consulting our feelings or culture, let us understand your will from you, from your word, and not impose on the text anything that might be in our hearts or minds. But let you speak. Speak to us, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, 
please visit www.audioverse.org.